We're going to be in, in Acts chapter 16. So if you want to open your Bibles there, Acts chapter 16, as we continue to bounce through the book of Acts, we're looking at conversational Christianity, especially the, uh, those who, who kind of gave it its root, uh, who gave us the example as to how we can go about ourselves um, making sure that we have appropriate conversations. And uh, this one's a rather unique one. It's not one that gains a lot of attention in our personal study, but uh, Lydia was, evidently was a really phenomenal woman. We, again, we don't know a lot about her, but in this brief glimpse that we get of Lydia, you, you, you have some things here that I think are important and impressive to our lineup of items with regards to our own personal conversations and how we can implement them as we go along. Last time we looked at Bar Jesus and it had to do with confrontation. And remember, he's a, the false Jesus, actually. And he was trying to distract. Well, that was that key word last week was confrontation. The key word this morning is going to be accessibility, making ourselves accessible to God's leading with regards to conversations that we need to be having with people. And I think, I think you'll see this readily probably don't even need to, sh uh, to present this lesson because I think you can read it on your own and see it. But maybe I can share a couple of illustrations and it'll bring it maybe even more to life in your life. Um, I'm in Acts chapter 16, I'm going to verse 11 and we'll read from 11 on down through verse 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We, were, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the, to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. That'll be our first point. We'll see that in a moment. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's a really neat story about hospitality, uh, a story about a leading woman. Uh, and there's a lot of things about this text that will point to that idea of her being very much a leading woman. Not the least of which is you'll notice that, that Lydia and all of her household come to know the Lord. That typically, that, that line is typically reserved for people such as what we're going to see later on in this chapter, the Philippian jailer. It's going to talk about this man who's led to Christ, and then he leads his entire family. They make that decision because the head of the home has decided we're going to make this transition in life. It became very important for the rest of the family to fall in line as well. I'm not suggesting that they weren't sincere in their, uh, their giving uh, allegiance to Jesus, but I am saying that when dad makes that directive move, when he goes in that direction, Things are powerful. You've probably seen the statistics that have been out on social media for some time now. I don't remember exactly what it is, but the, the, the greater, how shall I say it? When a father is involved in spiritual things, the involvement of his family coming to the Lord and being a part of the Lord, it just, it's astronomically higher than any other factor that you can place within the home. It's very, very important for mom to be a loyal disciple of Christ. 
But even that doesn't seem to, to garner the same impression as if you have a father who is involved. We've all seen the comics or whatever they are with, you know, the dad who's hiding under his Sunday paper as the family parades behind him. I think it was a Norman Rockwell picture. And the family parades behind him on, the, on their way to church. And we typically have that vision of a man. Uh, in our culture, unfortunately, that he's going to be the one who's going to be out doing things to make him feel good on Sunday rather than being in a place of worship, uh, coming together with God's people. But my point for saying that is this. In this text, we have no mention of a man. I'm not saying there wasn't a man, but I am saying that there's some impressive qualities that we find out about this lady, Lydia. Notice that she is a seller of purple. It doesn't say her husband is. It says she is. That's interesting. Notice again, as I've already pointed out, that once she comes to the Lord, her entire household is going to be coming to the Lord as well, which kind of leads us to believe that she might have been a single individual, perhaps a widow, etc., or she just simply had that kind of influence over her home. We don't know. But she had an impressive impact upon her family to the extent that they're all going to come to know the Lord. To you and I, that doesn't sound quite as big of an adventure, perhaps, but it should. Put yourself in this context. We are far, far, far away from Jerusalem. I'm not saying that there aren't other Jews in the area, but we are far, far away from the epicenter of Judaism, religion of that day, as far as God's stuff is concerned. This is a pagan culture, a culture that is not too far from the epicenter of the Greek false gods. This is a colony, as it says in my translation, a colony of Rome, which was itself a pagan empire. Meaning that these individuals who have decided to give their loyalty to Jesus, they make a big leap of faith when they do so. Now, admittedly, when you come back to our text, Lydia is already worshiping God. She's already at the riverside. So she's already made that partial step, if you will, toward the Messiah. She already has evidently faith in Jehovah God, etc. But when Paul shows up and he's going to say to her, your faith is not complete because you have not yet acknowledged the Son of God, that had to really resonate within her heart as to, hmm, that's another big step for me to take. I'm already a Jehovah worshiper in the midst of a very pagan culture. Now you want me to go to another level where I'm not just a Jehovah worshiper, but I'm also going to worship his son, who you tell me has come to the earth, was abused horribly, died for my sins, has now gone back to be with God forever. And you want me to accept that I missed the Messiah, if you will. That I didn't recognize him in the world when he came to be here, if you will. This would have been a very difficult, challenging, convicting moment in her heart. Now, the Holy Spirit does not expand on it, and so we don't have a lot of information as to whether or not it was a difficult choice for her to, to make this transition or not, but it seems that it would have been. Now, let me pedal backwards, if you will. I'll just give you three points that I see very important to our, our lineup of conversational cues, things that we need to implement in our own life as we have conversations with other people. First of all, I want you to notice that it was on the Sabbath day that these, these fellas go outside the city gate to the riverside because they are trying to find a place of prayer. Accessibility. My first application, if you would, 
is this. We need to be people who seek out access points to our neighbor, with our neighbor. Place ourselves in positions where other individuals who would like to have a conversation about Jesus would be readily there. Find those places where the conversation about Jesus, it's not as awkward perhaps as it could be in other places. I love sports. I always had a, a big heart, place in my heart for sports, but I'll be honest with you. I've led very few people to the Lord while sitting in a gymnasium watching a basketball game. That doesn't make basketball evil. It just, it just makes it a context that's not very conducive to leading a person to Christ. On the other hand, I have found myself sitting beside a campfire with a few neighbors or friends and watching, watching the flickering flame and the, the sparks as they go off up into the heavens. And it just naturally opens up the doors for the glories of God and the discussion of who he is. We need to find access points. We need to readily be looking for places in the lives of our friends, family members, etc. That would be less awkward, if you will. I grew up during a time in our fellowship where door knocking was very, very important. And I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that sometimes in my life, it was very awkward because it was unnatural. And perhaps that was my problem. But um, I, 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 I was schooled with this train of thought that you should have this pre-memorized line, a lineup of things to say, knock on the door. And when the person answers the door, then you just basically assault them with what your thoughts are with regards to Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. And I always had, I always struggled with that. I'm not saying there wasn't times that I was able to make it effective. I did, but there was a lot of struggle in that because it was kind of an unnatural moment. Now let me take you to the deep South, which we happen to be a part of. Now let me just take you to the front porch on a September day, let's say. Let's not go quite into, <laughs> into November because it's getting cold out there. But let's just go to a late September day and we're seeing the leaves as they change and a neighbor passes by and sees you sitting on the front porch with a big glass of tea and hails you from the road and you hello them back. They pull the vehicle into the driveway and they come up and they sit on the porch and they, they talk for a while. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't happen much even in the deep south any longer. That's too bad. But hey, you want a cup of coffee? You want a, want a tall uh, cup of tea? Whatever it may be. And uh, you have that conversation on the front porch that leads you to talking about the neighbors and local news and whatever it may be. And then eventually leads you to a discussion of Jesus. You see how natural that is? We need to get back to that. And one of the reasons we're not getting back to that is because we have allowed culture to rob us of these natural moments of interaction. We run so fast, our schedules are so full, that even when I pass you in Walmart, I don't really have the time to stop and talk to you about the business of the Lord, because I've got to get on to the next assignment, the next thing, whatever it may be. Imagine if we could recapture the front porch mentality, that natural opportunity to just talk about God as you're sitting there on the porch watching the leaves flutter in front of you, noticing that they're changing in the fall, and you just, you just have that natural opportunity to say, ain't God cool, ain't God awesome. we got to get back to the access points. And sometimes it means creating them, such as the front porch situ situation. 
Number two, as you continue to read, he says that they were there supposing to find a place of prayer. And he says, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Another interesting point here is that you only got women mentioned. I don't know why. Was this just a, a women's prayer group? Uh, were there no other men really interested in godly things? I, it doesn't say. We don't have the context. But it is interesting to me that Paul does not allow a women's group to keep him from going, attending, and interacting with them about the Lord. My second point, however, comes on down here in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She's the hero of our story. <coughs> Excuse me. She was from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Again, I've already enumerated some of those things about her, her impressive character. Um, one thing I didn't mention, however, is that being a seller of purple probably indicates that she was wealthy. Uh, you're familiar with the, the purple dye and how they got that, and it was rare, etc., etc. So she probably had some wealth. She probably was a, a woman of means. But nevertheless, she's at the riverside. She's on her knees, probably, praying to God with other women. She's an impressive character. But Paul shows up, and they begin to have this, may I use the word, conversation. And the conversation naturally is going to involve the Lord. Somewhere in that little context that we don't have much information about, but somewhere in there, Paul has addressed her with the Jesus who came, was crucified, and has now ascended back to the Father. Somewhere in that context, that has to happen. We know that that is true because as you come down further, you're going to find that she and her whole household are going to give them themselves to Jesus. It's a little bit like the Acts 8 story with Philip and the eunuch. We don't know anything really about what Philip told the eunuch except that he preached unto him Jesus. And yet, that's enough, isn't it? That's all it really takes. The same kind of thing is here in this text. We don't know what Paul said, but the one thing you can be guaranteed of, he preached unto them Jesus. Jesus was the subject matter. And then, so number two, you're going to find <clears throat> that the Lord is going to open her heart. Now, my second point is that it's not just that we need to seek out the access point, but we need to be people who acknowledge the access point. What I mean by that is, notice it's the Lord who opens her heart. I don't mean to take the shine off of this, but Paul was nothing more than the mouthpiece. He's just the messenger. It's the Lord who's going to open the heart. And the same thing is true of you and I. We've got to remember our role in all of this. Last Sunday, I was talking to Jim at the back, and, and he made a point that I thought was profound about Paul as he travels the known world. And he, <clears throat> he here's a man who takes many folks with him. He travels all over the world. He spends time, you know, living in dangerous situations, etc. And, and we get this picture that that's got to be me. I got to travel the world or I can't be a good Christian. I got to live in dangerous situations and communicate with foreign cultures and all, or I can't be a good Christian. But Jim said this, he said, but did you ever consider who Paul leaves behind every place he goes? In many of these places, he establishes the Lord's church and then he moves on. What do they do? Do they all pack up and start doing foreign missions? No. They establish with deep roots the Lord's church in that community. There is just as much power in you evangelizing your neighbor 
as there is in you hopping on a plane and going to Nigeria to evangelize those who live in that foreign land. If we do it effectively. Cindy and I have, throughout most of our ministry, we've been proud to call ourselves missionaries to America because that's been our mission. When I was a young man, I was planning, my, my goal was to go to Russia. And that, that was going to be the place that I was going to end up. Never been to Russia. In fact, I've never been out of the country on an evangelistic mission trip. I plan to this coming year, but I've never been out of the country on an evangelistic mission trip. But I've crisscrossed this country, hundreds of congregations in this country, hundreds of people in this country. And I'm not so sure but what that's really the most natural plan anyhow. Jim's point, I think, is well taken. Consider it. Paul goes, he establishes a church so that that church can be evangelistic in its own community. The best people to reach out to a community are people who live in the community. That just makes sense. Well, we've got a community. Are we reaching out? The second point is that we need to acknowledge the access point, and that access point is Jesus, the Lord, will open the hearts of those if we will just simply present the message. Some of those hearts will not open. They will refuse. That's not your call. You're not to kick down that door. But some of them, a few, will open the door. They'll accept Jesus. They will become a member of his body, his family. And we can praise God for that opportunity that we have to be simply the messenger of the message. Number three, and I'll be done. <clears throat> Starting to lose this, forgive me. The last thing <clears throat> that I see is verse 15. And after she was baptized, her and her whole household as well, she urged us to say, she urged us saying, forgive me, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Hold your finger there and skip now to verse 40. Verse 40, same chapter. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when she, excuse me, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. It's really interesting what happens between verse 15 and verse 40. We don't know a lot of the information, but evidently Lydia's house had become the center point of fellowship. Again, another illustration of home church. But what we have here is Lydia's house being a household that was open to the brethren. Because that's where Paul's going to go before leaving town. He's going to go to Lydia's house. Because I know to go to Lydia's house, I'm going to find everybody assembled there. And then I can talk to everybody at once. But back to my third point, and that, which is simply this. We need to, as we move through conversations, we need to make sure that we validate the access point. Now let me go back and review. you got number one, seek out the access point. Acknowledge it's God who's going to work in that access point. And then number three, validate the access point. Meaning, when you find a place that gathers people together who are interested in talking about the Lord, go back. Don't desert it. That's a prime place. There's a reason why Paul, seemingly every city that he went to, what's the first place he stops? Synagogue. Almost every city is going to go to the synagogue. Why? Because the Jew had already made that partial step towards the Messiah. They're not fully there yet, but they made that partial step because they believe in the same God that Paul does, the same Jehovah. Now all Paul has to do is he goes to a place where there's common ground and he says, now you need to go one step further. You need to make your salvation full. And it can't be full unless you acknowledge the Son of God, the Christ has come. That's why he went to the synagogues. But you know, 
Some of the most abusive places Paul ever found himself was the synagogues. I mean, they, they pack him up, take him outside the city and stone him. They're just abusive people. And yet he keeps going back. You know why? Because he is going to validate that access point. Not only did Paul often get abused, stoned, whatever it may be, by going to the synagogues, but on occasion, he actually had a few who would follow him into a loyalty to Jesus. And Paul says, it's for those few that I keep going back. Seek out access points. Acknowledge that it is God who will make that access point come alive in the hearts of people. And then go back to the access point. Use it and use it and use it again. Because our job is, of course, to make sure that we're not just accessible to God and his service, but that others become accessible to him as well. Key word today, accessibility.